How's that? Ripping performance, old boy. Come over to the podcast and meet the others. Podcast? It's like a cross between the wireless and a gramophone, old fellow. Paul, may I present Hugh? How do you do, Hugh? (laughs) No one's ever made that joke before. Hugh who? (laughs) Can we just move on past the Hugh jokes? I'm sorry, Paul, but he'd like to remain incognito, and I think we should respect that after what he's done today. Of course, yes. First rate, sir. This is Giles, the Doctor Science of our podcast. Ah, your enthusiasm for Doctor Who is worthy of the master. What? Well, uh, the other Hugh. Who? Now he's doing it. A commissioner of the Daleks Master Plan, Sir Hugh Weldon. Yes, of course. Are you able to stay for the podcast, Hugh? Yes, you must. I insist now. Thank you. Good. We need someone to get stuck in a secret passage for the better part of an episode. Oh. And it's always useful to have someone new to blame, you know, if anything goes wrong. I see. Only thing is, I haven't got a fancy podcast microphone. I was just thinking how charming yours was. That's true, Hugh. We'd better get started before I change my mind. Hello and welcome to Something Who podcast episode 29. And this time we're crossing the streams. It's both one of our mainstream episodes where we compare a story from the original series with one from the new. And also we have a special guest. In this episode we're looking at Doctor Who's two great sporting encounters, starting with the Fifth Doctor's cricketing exploits in Black Orchid, followed by the Eleventh Doctor's footballing feats in The Lodger. And who better to help us with that than Hugh Turberville? Hello, Hugh. Hi, good evening. Nice to be on here. Well, it's great to have you on. And welcome to what we're calling, for one episode only, Something Hugh. (laughs) So many of you will know Hugh as a sports journalist and as the managing editor of the Cricketer magazine, but the three regular contributors here also know him as an occasional visitor to Gallifrey Bass's Missing Episodes megathread. So, Hugh, I guess I should introduce you to your fellow members of the forum. So you you may be able to guess that I go by the imaginative handle of Richard Smith. And then there's there's Minmi, uh, who's our very own Giles. That's me, yes. And Paul shares his surname with the Merseyside Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah. I've been looking back through the family tree to see if we're related, because obviously if we were, I might have some leverage, but unfortunately nothing. No link has yet. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great to have you on board. Thanks for thanks for coming along, Hugh. So I guess now we've done that reunion. So Hugh, what's your story with Doctor Who? Uh, how did you become a fan, and and what kept you going with it? Well, I was born in 1972, and of course in those days we didn't have much ch- choice on TV channels. Uh, <laughs> I started, I think, just caught it on a Saturday night, probably absolutely terrified by the rat in Talons of Wang Chiang and the ah. uh, robots and robots of death. And then I think a guy around the corner from me was a bit older than me, was a massive fan of the show, and he had this beautiful little game uh, with little red and blue Daleks. Was it called Dalek War or something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I managed to persuade him to borrow a couple of these Daleks, and I got 
sort of quite transfixed by that. I think I, my, my, may or might not have been a factor. I think K9 was quite a big pivotal thing. Mm-hmm. Vividly remember watching on my grandfather's black and white TV the unveiling of K9 Mark II at the end of Invasion of Time. Yeah. Key to time. I remember frog marching my dad all the way down to his auntie's house mm-hmm. when we were on holiday in Wales to insist upon watching Android Tara because that was repeated on BBC England, not BBC Wales. And if you went down the hill, you could get the pick, the BBC England pickup in the same right. town. And then he got quite annoyed with me because he found out that, that was, it was only a repeat anyway. <laughs> Destiny the Daleks, very excited because that was on Blue Peter and previewed. We're thrilled about that. And but yeah, by then I was a pretty much a, a fan, really, and just sat through season 18, wasn't it? Mm. Even though uh, Leisure Hive was a bit dull and Megloss was dreadful. Uh, I, I just sort of, by, by then, was transfixed and wouldn't have ever dreamt of... Um, switching over to Buck Rogers in the 25th century on the other channel. <laughs> um, and then I love Tom Baker, absolutely larger than life. Yeah. Doofy smiles, wacky clothes, just awesome, wasn't he? And then yeah. what really sealed the deal, I suppose, was Peter Davison, who I was already a fan of, in you know, all great and small. Yeah. And then being the cricket doctor, I suppose, um, really did it. That that merged my two, you know, two of my great loves, cricket and uh, Doctor Who. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I guess I, there was something similar with, with me in that. It was fantastic to, to, to think the two things could be combined. Mm. Although, maybe not always fully coherently. No, so what do we see? In Castro Valvo, we see that he's got his own pavilion, I suppose, in, in the TARDIS, yeah. which was quite sweet. And although clearly it was um, CGI, wasn't it? Or, or colour separation overlay, as it's called in, in those days. And then four to Doom's Day, he threw the ball, uh, cricket ball, at the side of the spaceship to sort of propel himself off, which I think um, anybody with a scientific leaning has dismissed as errant nonsense. I'm going to play the fifth on that one because I know if I say anything on that, I will be caught, caught out on the physics. Caught out. Oh, God, there I go again. Um, I think that was that was the consensus. I'd need to go back and watch it and uh, figure out exactly what was, what's wrong with it. I'm sure it is wrong, but... Nevertheless, yeah, that was in it as well. And then, of course, yeah. Orchid was the big one. Doctor Who had been in uh, a cricket head. Sorry, had been in, in Doctor Who a few times before, hadn't it? Well, Tom Baker threw a rock, boulder rock, yes, in a hand of, um, and he threw, had a cricket ball in his pocket for arc in space to activate the defence mechanisms of Nerva Beacon. So, I think the fourth Doctor was a cricket fan, um, but the first Doctor didn't know anything about it when the TARDIS landed on the outfield of Lords during an Ashes test in Dalek Master Plan. Dalek's Master Plan, I should say. I have been mm. discussing that very recently for a rival podcast. Stay tuned. He said he didn't know anything about the game, I believe. I have written a blog about all the times that it popped up in Doctor Who over the years. To my knowledge, it never cropped up in Trout and Pertwee. But <laughs> no. I've always wondered with that scene in the Dalek's Master Plan, whether that inspired, mm. whether Douglas Adams saw that and had that stored away. Because of uh, the bit in um, like the universe and everything. Yeah, it's all very tongue in cheek, isn't it? And taking the Mickey out of Test Match Special, the, the famous BBC radio program, and you know, commentators wittering on about what's going on on the outfield, or you know, or the big red bus has gone past, or uh, that is that kind of irreverent humour, you know. And the, 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 these commentators wouldn't bat an eyelid that that a landed on the outfield and uh, it's merely a, a, an annoyance that the test match between England and Australia has been delayed uh, and, and in, once it disappears they get straight back on with the action again. England still require or now require 73 and 38 minutes I think the, isn't it the exact script or, or something like that. 
yeah so it's that same kind of humor whereas yeah very much um i've got the book actually behind me doctor and the cricket man i haven't read it yet but um douglas adams it's something about a, a wicket gate isn't it or something with the three stumps and the bales and yeah the cricket men are after this wicket gate or something and uh it's that same kind of irreverent humor isn't it douglas adams one more thing about him i just recalled is that douglas um 42 of course great significance the answer to life the universe and everything but he got that number because england had bowled india out for 42 <laughs> 42 <laughs> that sounds convincing um i'll just quickly google when that was second test 1974 oh right india were bowled out for 42 at launch by england so obviously douglas adams found that highly hilarious and and because it's obviously an incredibly low score for cricket mm. yeah he, he adopted that number for the the greatest question of all of course you know mm. life university and then what's the question six times seven it, the, i tell you what the question should have been what did england bowl india out towards <laughs> 1974 that might that might have been better but no um it would it would have made more sense i think yeah perhaps yeah uh, <laughs> How many roads must a man walk down? <laughs> I haven't gone back to check, but the bit he... Didn't he specifically... Oh, it's all very well to say inspired the cricket men, but he recycled quite certain aspects of that and shard for life, the universe and everything. And isn't there a scene that's basically the same where the sofa mm. appears on the cricket pitch and we hear the commentators? Yes, exactly. The same with, gag, with, with the commentary. It must have had a great impression on him. With, at an, yes. At a young age. Hmm. I just remembered that David Tennant used a cricket ball to stop a piano landing on a pram in um, Human Nature. Oh, yes. So there was a bit more cricket coming up. And uh, funnily enough, also, um, in Silver Nemesis, the Cybermen had uh, Duncan Burnley cricket gloves, painted silver. <laughs> double knuckle, double knuckle gloves, they were called, yeah. Sure. Well, OK, well, let's let's move on to the stories then. Do we kick off with Black Orchid? Now, I think you've chosen the wrong metaphor there. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. Um, <laughs> He's on a sticky wicket already. Uh, yeah. So, in July 1981, I went along with my dad and, and a friend of mine and we watched the final day of the Headingley Test Match, which was the day after both of them had, had carted the Australians around the ground. And it was the day that Bob Willis then skittled them out and, and started off that Australian Ashes series that, that so caught the, the nation. Well, it may not have caught Paul and Giles, but certainly you know, for, for many of us it did. And then just, just a few months later, they're filming this in October 81. Yeah, well, I wasn't a cricket fan then. So actually, come to think of it, I, I think I was playing, but I wasn't following it on TV. I think I played it in the garden. I played it at school because my best friend played it in my hometown i went to in a long story but he he got me into by playing cricket in the garden but at that stage i wasn't watching it so i was i was actually oblivious to the 81 ashes and i think actually the following summer 82 was the first time i sat down and watched a test match england pakistan but yeah come to think of it looking at those timings i don't know how much of an actual cricket fan i I suppose I, I, i certainly was playing um i started playing when i was 10 and and in the garden eight eight or nine yeah but I, I wasn't aware of both. I don't think I was even aware of both of heroics in Australia, against Australia in 81. So, um, yeah, funny that, really. So maybe Doctor yeah, well, Who maybe got, helped me get into cricket a bit more. <laughs> Not the other way around. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm I'm a little bit older, yeah. so I think the first the first summer I watched Test cricket was 1978, uh, which kind of coincided with with the emergence of of both of them as a mm. real force in the England team. And then by 81, of course, he'd had a bit of a, a, a lull. But then I'd persuaded my dad that he, he would take me to the to see the Headingley mm. Test, but he could only make it for the last day. Um, so on the fourth day, I was, I was very glum because England were, were, were falling apart and threatening to lose the, the, the match on the fourth day. And uh, when, when both of them and Dilly had their mm-hmm. heroic. So, I mean, I was just delighted about the fact that they'd managed to make it last into the fifth day, which meant we could go along and watch yeah. it, not really imagining that, that uh, they were going to um, win the Well, I mean, some of your listeners probably haven't got a clue about dogs, that cricket. Some of you guys probably have got a clue about cricket. So, um, to give it some context, I mean, it's, it's a numbers game, really, isn't it? But I think England got 174, Australia scored over 400, and then England yeah. had lost half the team in the second time round and were nowhere near getting enough runs to make Australia bat again. Um, and if you can't understand that, well, let me tell you that the odds of England winning the match were 500 to 1, according to bookmakers. And actually, a couple of cheeky Aussie Larrikin players um, actually had a bet on England to win the game. It's quite a big scandal about that, actually. Um, they gave the bus driver a tenner to slip on England, you know, just in case. I've actually no, no belief that they wanted England to win or, or whatever. That was far from it. But, um, yeah, they had a cheeky little bet. And so that's sort of come to light over the years. But, yeah, 500 to 1 is probably the, you know, the greatest, one of the greatest comebacks, considering one of the two greatest comebacks in cricket history or test cricket history sure yeah and so and so this story i mean it may may already have been written by then i'm not sure but certainly you know shortly after that is is when they do the recording and and there's 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 certainly an echo of that heading the match in the way that you know lord cranley's side are, are, are almost down and out and then along comes a doctor to smash it all around the park and then then also uh, skittle the opposition so I wonder if if that was very heavily on Terence Studley's mind as he was writing this, or if it's just entirely coincidental that uh, he's given uh, Davison the uh, the sort of Bothman Willis roles. Spot on, yes. So I you know wonder whether Terry, Terence Studley took inspiration from that. Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you think he could well have done? Couldn't he? I don't know. I mean, when would the scripts have been written? I suppose no, it was well, filmed in October. Filmed in October, yeah. yeah so could have been. Yeah, written. could well have been in the summer it's, it's it's just it's hard to know i don't know whether terence dudley was a cricket fan or or, or what have you but uh, no you're absolutely right aren't you that um i suppose the doctor could have been dilly in a way couldn't he i'm again yes. towards the end and then hit a 50 <laughs> he certainly hit a 50 with, um, yes. an array of sort of slogs and what have you i mean i, I interviewed um peter davison for, for my magazine the cricketer he said he he liked cricket but Judging by his technique, I, I wouldn't say he was sort of a, a brilliant cricketer, really. But he's obviously hat, sort of handy, you know, knew knew how to hold a bat and so forth. Um, but it was all sort of slogs to to leg, the leg side, and <laughs> it, it wasn't sort of cultured stroke play of the like you know we, we we've seen from Ian Bell and people like that over the years. You know, he's just retired. Mm. But it, yeah, it, it was sort of whole, hearty hitting, mm. and in the in the bowling was um, he he didn't really use his front arm. Bowlers use their front arm. Get it nice and high, then yeah. the back arm comes through with the ball. But the doctor wasn't using his front arm; he just used his back arm. So, I, I would say, I, I wouldn't have thought he was a particularly good club cricketer. But, but he obviously liked the game and uh, and knew the game. Yeah, and uh, it was it was great fun uh, interviewing him. 
about Black Orchid, but um, yeah, um, mm-hmm. Ron Jones was the director, wasn't he? Um, That's right. Yeah, he had yeah. a very checkered record in his Doctor Who director. I mean, I, I love Frontios; it's one of my favourite stories, actually. That was a yeah. good one, but um, he he did some other stuff that wasn't so good. I mean, I suppose he couldn't help Time Flight that no. they were trying to recreate a prehistoric plane on in BBC Studios or in, um, Concord and all that. But um, yeah, I mean, one of the major failings of, of the cricket match was that um, the Doctor hit a four and they signalled a wide. I'm shocked. You tell me, you can tell me there are aspects of Black Orchid that don't quite hold up. <laughs> okay. So a four is this motion here with with a finger across like that, and a, yeah. and a wide is just the two arms out like a scarecrow. So um, <laughs> obviously, no one on set was uh, on hand to to sort of point this out. I mean, I would have thought Peter Davison would have done, but uh, maybe he was busy or something, but doing something else, having his Harlequin costume fitted. <laughs> yeah. He was chuffed though. He told me that um, they left the camera rolling when he was bowling and. He, he, you know, he he didn't think that the camera was filming, that they were going to edit it all. So he'd run into bowl, and then they sort of just throw the ball at the stumps, to, and and he ran in and bowled, and he genuinely bowled the guy out. It hit the stumps, and he was thrilled but initially disappointed that he didn't think the cameraman was filming it. And he said, "You didn't get that, did you get that?" And he, and he did, and he was overjoyed that um, that it was actually sort of authentic. So, yeah. yeah. And then Lord Cranley, isn't it? Lord Cranley says to um, you played like the master, and of course the Doctor's horrified, thinking of his arch enemy, you know, from Gallifrey. But um, they say, oh yes, the master W. G. Grace, and the Doctor's relieved. But actually, that was another faux pas as well, because W. G. Grace wasn't the master; it was Jack Hobbs was the master, it was known as the master, the, the legendary high-scoring Surrey batsman Jack Hobbs. So. Not the all-round yeah. W.G. Graves. So that was another little error that probably 99.3% of the audience didn't pick up on. But <laughs> sad, those like me noticed it. Or maybe not noticed it at the time, but certainly noticed it subsequently. There's quite a lot of time given over to the cricketing sequence, narratively, especially when they've only got 50 minutes. Mm. You'd, think, you'd think they'd be jumping straight into the story and getting going with things, but instead... yeah. And it's halfway through the story rather than at the beginning. Mm. So, you, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think what, another thing we, we, were, we were going to talk about was Peter Davison's costume. And, and yeah. you know, as, you, as you were saying earlier, he, he, he picks it out in Castro Valva from the, from the pavilion in the TARDIS. But it, it's sort of, it's kind of cricketish, but it's not exactly a cricket costume. No, it was like, unlike any cricket costume that's ever been worn. In fact, it reminded me of that line from Jonathan Agnew. But England had a jumper a few years ago that was absolutely awful. It wasn't like any cricket jumper, uh, maybe horizontal, vertical lines, and then the bottom half was horizontal lines and had a big red line alongside it. It looked just bizarre. It was made by Adidas. And um, I suppose the Doctor's costume really wasn't really... I mean, it, what, it isn't the, the famous I Spy cartoon of the Edwardian cricketer. I mean... The jumper was authentic to start with. I think it was um, red, white and brown or stripes or something. It looked like a genuine proper cricket jumper. They they got rid of it and replaced it with this big one with red and black lines by the time of Frontios, so season 21, maybe. Just, you know, even the cricket, even the jumper wasn't authentic anymore. The coat was clearly a costume. Not a horrible thing by any stretch, was it? But um, it, very sort of 
tailored, wasn't it? And um, the trousers yeah. were, were sort of striped and, yeah, I didn't yeah. anything like it, really. Mm. They could have swapped the vegetable about occasionally, couldn't they? It could have been a leak one week and, uh, <laughs> and an artichoke. <laughs> All these missed opportunities. <laughs> Was it John Nathan Turner who claims the inspiration to have um, come up with the idea? He said he, he reckoned he saw a picture of Peter Davison playing in a charity cricket match when they were playing when they were filming All Creatures Great and Small. But Peter told me that um, he, you know he thought it was his idea. Yeah. Right. So, but he's happy to let um, John Nathan Turner come up with that. Yeah. No, it, it worked out quite well, didn't it? I think Philip Hinchcliffe was saying. I think I remember reading a magazine interview. He was asked what he would have done with the Doctor if he'd carried on, and he quite liked the sort of Brian said revisited sort of image of the Doctor as an Edwardian cricketer or um, mm-hmm. what have you. So yeah, no, seemed to work out fairly well, didn't it? Not as wacky as sort of Colin Baker's costume later. Yeah, indeed. So so I suppose at least with 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 Davison's costume, you've got the sense that people could have put those things together. Whereas clearly with Colin Baker, it, it is a costume that has been designed. No, it was horrendous, wasn't it? It was just awful, terrible production error, wasn't it? Felt so sorry for him. Because I did get to interview Colin Baker as well for the cricket. And he also is a big cricket fan. Yeah. Possibly more than Peter Davison, actually. So the cricket thing might have quite worked out quite well for Colin Baker. So that's the thing that I always remember seeing a picture of, of Colin Baker in cricket whites. Hmm. Um, around the time when he was cast. And that was the, that was around the time... Like a behind the scenes yeah, I know what picture. You mean. I I could have sworn there was one of him around the time he was cast. Yeah, and there was a story. That famous story of him was that uh, he, when JNT took him in to speak to, I think David Reed, John Reed, David Reed, who was the head of serials for the BBC, to sort uh-huh. of damp JNT's choice as the Doctor. Colin was a bit miffed because he was listening to the England India World Cup match 1983, and but when he got into the David Reed's office to his great relief David Reed was watching the match on his telly and they just didn't they didn't talk about Doctor Who very much at all they just talked about cricket so they hit it off and that helped uh, Colin get the job so <laughs> well I mean so sometimes it, it, it that kind of thing pays off yeah absolutely yes you know what you know and who you know and all that yeah I don't, I'm sure he wouldn't have not got it anyway but uh, it sort of helped him see all the deal yeah yeah Peter Davison later played um Another cricketer in, in Midsummer Murders actually he was telling me about. So, and he he got annoyed about that that uh, he was he was actually intervening on that occasion, telling people to hold the bat the right way and so on. He played the captain of a, of a team, Jeff Towler, his name. He didn't actually get to play any cricket, but but it, the, the story was about cricket. Yeah, yeah. In in the um, Blu-ray set for season nineteen, there was a return to the to the locations where they recorded black orchid mm. and one of the things they did was to wheel out davison once again you know padded up God. but but now in his 60s i mean he could barely lay a bat on a ball so but, but i mean i guess it was probably a long time since he played by that point yeah i don't know whether i got the black orchid dvd i must watch that yeah play it was filmed with the withyham cricket club wasn't it withyham east sussex right quite a long way from buckinghamshire railway center where they filmed the steam engine and uh they actually filmed a steam railway in Worcestershire, Buckinghamshire, Buckinghamshire, Worcestershire, and East Sussex were the three oh, right. locations. So they, they sort of spread it around a bit. But hmm. I googled the Google image with the Ham Cricket Club. It looks still looks very nice today. Hmm. Uh, it, you say it was filmed in October, so the pitch was very. It was green. You could tell that. Um, yeah. 
you could almost you could tell really it was out of season. There's a lot of mud around the edge of the pitch as well, where, where they've got the dinner party guests sort of um, sitting there watching. It's, yeah. all, it's, it's all a bit kind of squelchy. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit. Yeah, a bit. It's all tum, definitely. Yeah. Of course, we didn't see much more of Davis and the, the fifth Doctor's love of cricket after that, did we? He mentioned it in Caves of Androzani when Shara's Jack threw his toys out of the pram. Um, <laughs> we had the Doctor say that he was more a tennis player than a cricketer. <laughs> Riley, a Rye aside to um, Perry. And obviously that was reference to John McEnroe mm. and sort of having fits of, of tantrum, temper tantrums and so on. But yeah, we didn't see much more cricket after that, did we? We saw him mm. in the Doctor Who Monthly, the Doctor mm. magazine. He was playing in um, Dockbridge, wasn't he? Right. Yes. Yeah. In fact, yes. if I vaguely remember the ball being bowled at the Doctor, and it suddenly turned into a hand grenade in one story. Oh. So, um, Ooh. Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't. I don't think they were all that interested in in the cricketing aspect. I think it was a, it was a means to um... gimmick, really, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And of course, there was, there were, in the original photo shoot, we had the chalk, the, the stumps chalked on the uh, Tardis, and a Duncan Fernley bat. And I've just written a piece about Slazenger cricket bats with a cricketer that's gone really wildly. I, I love to say viral, but it's it's not broken the internet. But mm. compared to some of the things I, I write. Uh, <laughs> It really has taken off. Actually, if you go, if you Google my name and Glasenger, it's I think a hundred thousand people read it or something. Oh yeah. So um, people get really interested mm. in the subject of bats. And uh, Peter Davison was using a Duncan Fernley bat, a very distinctive mm. logo of three black stars. He does indeed. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, I was going to mention that if you didn't. <laughs> yeah, I'm planning to. That's my next article, Duncan Fernley. Well, I I I, uh, I I bought a Duncan Fernley bat in the mid '80s with my first paycheck, mm. mainly because I think both of them used it. Yeah, that's right. I have to have to say that it was a lovely bat, but I never did very much with it. Although my friend borrowed it and scored fifty, so he showed me there was nothing wrong with the bat. It was just my technique. No, I, I had a Duncan Fernley bat and didn't like it. But I think it was probably too heavy for me. I'd... I didn't really think too carefully about what I really needed, and I don't know. I always like light bats for some reason. Yeah, it didn't it didn't do the business for me either. So they're all the same wood, really, aren't they? They're, just for your list, they're, they're, it's basically all the same wood from certain parts of the home county. I think there's a place in Essex mm. where the wood comes from. They do make some bats in India, but yeah. um, essentially the the wood is all from Essex and Kent. Particular type of willow, and I mean they just put different stickers on it, don't they? And but essentially it's the same thing, really. I mean. However mm. good the piece of wood is dictates how good the bat is, and whether it's got a Slazenger stick or a Duncan Fernley mm. or Grey Nichols is neither here nor there, really. I don't think. I mean, there's certainly an element, of, and there was an element of good craftsmanship, of course, but uh, mm. playing down the wood or whatever. But um, yeah. So, you pointed out that nobody involved in the production of Black Orchid really knew much about cricket, and perhaps we could also infer that they didn't. They didn't care very much because nobody wanted to do the research that would have been necessary. So why did they devote so much? Was um, it wouldn't have been Terence Dudley's idea, presumably? Yeah. And it's the only story in this season where it would fit, mm. or indeed any season. Yes. So for all that I complained about this cricket section being a bit long, oddly positioned, and not really doing <laughs> the story in which it's placed any justice. It, on the on the other hand, it is part of the the side of Black Orchid that I like most and which I think appeals to a lot of its fans, which is the mm. fact that we get to see the TARDIS crew 
in a more <laughs> a more everyday, I was going to say realistic, a more everyday setting. Relaxing, enjoying themselves, not having to fend mm. off alien yeah, invasions yeah. left, right and centre. Just doing normal everyday things. Yeah. Dancing, eating, playing games. Hmm. So, yeah, Tegan's... Yeah, I suppose it's because she's the token Earth person. But she uh, she she mm. ends up... She has to know everything in this story. She has to know how to dance, how to play cricket. How... Mm. Cheering on the Doctor um, yes. in the cricket match. Yeah, she's explaining it to Adric and Nissa, wasn't she? So she's from Brisbane, so that's a hotbed of cricket. So that would explain... That's nice that she um, had a bit of an interest. So in that sense, it's quite a real-world story. But on the, on the other hand... It, it isn't, because it's entirely based on certain genre, uh, fictional genre. Hmm. I'm not going to say tropes. I've got to start, I've got to find, what, look at what word I used to use before that somebody invented tropes. Yes. The thing that I went looking for was, um, obviously, because I've always thought, oh, Bright Heavy Visitors is all over this. But this was filmed, this was commissioned hmm. before when Wild Brighter was in production, maybe... Maybe it was in production, so maybe word was a word was getting around that they were doing this lavish production. But um, Brighthead didn't come out until I believe eighty two, or later later in eighty two. Uh-huh. Some of its detract. Everyone assumes it's an Agatha Christie pastiche, and on mm. the other, on the flip side, even some of its detractors uh, criticised Black Orchid for not being very good at Agatha Christie because it's not much of a murder mystery. There are no other suspects, mm. and no investigating or anything really it's just taking the beginning and end of that sort of hmm. he does throw everything in doesn't he um, Terence Dudley considering he's only got two parts to fill he puts a lot more well in some ways more in than he needs to I don't listen to the commentary recently because <laughs> I'd like to say I can't remember what it is specifically Peter Davison doesn't like I know he thinks it's not much good as a mystery does he hmm Doppelganger side of it doesn't go anywhere. It's nothing to do with the plot or to do with the mystery. Until the end, yeah. So it adds a bit of colour to the denouement. Yes, it's a bit funny that we have this... We have this the case of mistaken identity doesn't involve mm. the doppelgangers. You, you set up that you've got doppelgangers in the story and then, then you have it's the Doctor that gets mistaken just because someone, someone nicks his outfit. Terence Dudley had been a successful producer, hadn't he, of other programmes and they seemed to... They probably sort of had to give him enough work to keep him busy until retirement, and they seemed to give him chuck a few Doctor Who's his way, didn't they? I think that's what Eric Sayward thinks, yeah, when he was tr- trying to push for new people all the time, and Nathan Turner was just giving his friends jobs, now that he was in a position to. To write a, a Doctor Who or two, didn't he? I think he, he wrote Fort of Doomsday, didn't he? That's right. Yeah, I didn't mind quite like Fort of Doomsday, but he wrote Fort of Doomsday in Black Orchid, and he, did he direct as well, or did he not direct? I think he did direct, yes. Yeah. I mean, he he wrote Girl's Best Friend, didn't he? He wrote Canon and Company, which was pretty lousy. Yeah. Oh, he directed Megloss, my goodness. There we go. My goodness, your, he directed Megloss. Your, your favourite. <laughs> I tried today and I just couldn't with those ridiculous wigs and just ludicrous speeches and, oh, dear, oh, dear. What were they playing at? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he won't go down as one of the greats, will he? But um, I'm, I'm sure he did. He wrote The King's Demons as well. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just think they probably had to sort of give him, give him a bit of work. You know, and a bit like Peter Moffat. I mean, although Peter Moffat did quite a nice job on State of Decay, didn't he? And the visitation. Yeah. Was pretty bad. He sort of fizzled out a bit, didn't he? 
the two I think the two doctors was his last one and I think he made a bit of a pig's ear of that, didn't he? But um yeah, he wasn't too bad, was he? And tackled it with a degree of enthusiasm. But um yeah, maybe I'm doing Terence Dudley a gross disservice, but but I think probably that was his kind of last job before retirement, probably. Yeah, I mean I think one of one of the issues perhaps with with directors is that what we get a lot of is is convention anecdotes from actors. And so the actors, you know, often tell us about the directors that they enjoyed working with. You know, they get a, a, a very good report. But, you know, to some extent, that's irrelevant in terms of what we see on the screen. They all take the mick out of Peter Grimway, don't they? Yeah. But actually, Earthshot was brilliant, wasn't it? And Full Circle was brilliant. And he was hmm. tremendously passionate, enthusiastic director who had a degree of precision and passion and 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 he did a fantastic job but they, but they all thought he was a pain and they? they didn't think he was a very good actor direct mm. pete davison said but i mean i can see in Earthshock because peter grimway had worked on one of my favorite things tinker taylor soldier spy he was in a production assistant or unit manager or something like that and um, he brought a lot of the actors over from that that had been in tinker taylor soldier spy so i think he was a sort of great Doctor Who director, really. Um, yeah, yeah. So, what exactly do we think? What exactly do we think this is? As the the tone of it is a bit borrowed, said revisited, a bit mm-hmm. as a uh, bit Agatha Christie, or even. But it's not the mur- the murder mystery stuff. The setup of the deranged villain who's returned from overseas hmm. with a priceless object is more uh, Sherlock Holmes than Agatha Christie, really. To the extent oh, that it's got anything true, to do yes. with it, anything to do with murder mysteries, there, mm. uh, Michael Cochran's character has a few Bertie Worcesterish lines. That right. Some of the social snobbery with her ladyship is a bit, I don't know, a bit uh, more Noel Cowardy. Mm. <laughs> so, what exactly is this? It, I, I don't think it's barely got started, and it barely sets a foot in any one genre before it gives up. I very much doubt that they went into it saying, let's make a story that's about nothing. It's just, it's <laughs> not, it doesn't have to be anything more than just showing our characters off duty. And they had these two episodes sort of hanging around that they that were going spare because they decided to do um, right. Canine, Canine and Company, yeah. <laughs> which Terence Dudley also wrote. So I'm not sure whether he got a, he got a yep. job lot. So he, so he did eight, eight episodes in this in this series. Yeah. Yeah, but he'd done Four to Doomsday and he'd done... I see. Canine and Company, which was kind of part of the same production block, and and then these mm. two. So he'd done eight, eight of the twenty-eight that the team were mm. making Classics in the all. period. Yeah, yeah. And I guess they didn't have anything terribly consequential they could do with those two episodes. But it's interesting, what Paul, what you said about the the um, Sherlock Holmes link, because that really does feel mu- it's much more of a that sort of gothic, gothic esque. You know, there's an, any number of. And Sherlock Holmes, like the Blanche Soldier, and all sorts of things, but that would and thus link I th- to that. I think you need a strong Holmesian figure to stride through this story and sort mm. it out, like Tom mm. Peak, Tom Baker. But Peter Davison, and I'm not saying Davison couldn't have done it, even though his daughter no. isn't generally written that way. But he's not allowed to in this story. Mm. Can I explain? I finally put my finger on it after all these years. I finally put my finger on what I do and don't like about this. I mean, I, mo- I mostly don't like it, but I, I, I try to be fair. And what I realised is I like the first episode and I don't like the second. Hmm. The first isn't, doesn't really go anywhere, but it sets up lots of... In- it has lots of colour, pastiches all the right things. It has some genuinely wry lines. I won't say I laughed out loud, but it's, hmm. it's as funny yeah. as, <laughs> as you would expect from Terence Dudley. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's 
poodling along and it looks like it might go somewhere. Mm. If it was the first part, if it was the first of four episodes, but then it's episode two for me, it falls off a cliff almost immediately. It doesn't really, it's episode two that makes it clear that it's not following through on its promise of being a murder mystery. Mm. And it suddenly starts to become concerned with lots of things that I don't like about in Doctor Who. Mm. The Doctor being suspected, wrongly accused, and for some reason blustering and not being able to talk his way out of it like an idiot. I mean, this is the, the fifth Doctor is weakest. I, it's very unfortunate. Mm. And then it just ke- keeps getting worse, companion's yeah. errors. When he decides the only way he can clear his name is to tell everyone he's a Time Lord. <laughs> and like that's not going to make him look mm. like the sort of person who sort of insane person who might be murdering random strangers at a party and then to show them his TARDIS this is all just I'm just screaming no why why is it going in this direction this is nonsense why the doctor wouldn't is cleverer than this mm. and it doesn't make any whether or not you think he would randomly show people all his secrets just to get off out of a situation which in any other week he would be able to talk his way out of Yes, it's using, pretty small beans. Using some ingenious logical wit or en- anything else that's beyond this writer. Mm. Whether or not you think he would do that, it doesn't even work because when <laughs> when he's got the police assembled around him in the TARDIS control room, the policeman says, well, this is all very well. You may be an alien, but that doesn't prove you're not a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is very true. And a line that I wouldn't... If I'd written myself into that corner, I'd have probably skipped skip that line because it kind of <laughs> proves that the last 10 minutes is a complete waste of time. Yes. Yeah. So that's my problem. It, it wastes most of part two. Oh, and the, I can mm. see why Davidson doesn't like it. He spends most of part one wandering around in a corridor talking to himself. Mm. And most of part two, acting like a fool. And then it sort mm. of brings it back again at the end when it remembers what the main plot was. But mm. for the audience, there's been no real mystery because mm. it's pretty obvious who's behind all this. Is it a why done it rather than a who done it? So mm. that's what I think. <laughs> so it, it would have made mm. a really good one-parter. <laughs> it's missing... Yeah, it's, it's well, it would be a 50-minute story these days, wouldn't it? All, yeah. all it needs is one... One big moment of deduction from the doctor mm. would actually kind of make it snap to snap together. It was just said I was a bit more of a mystery and less telegraphs to the audience, maybe, or just just have the impression that there is a, a mystery. You know, and they they could still have made it obvious to the audience, but just have it less obvious to the doctor. What's going? Yeah, you know, just have the the idea that the doctor's been presented with a mystery, some clues and some evidence for him to um for him to make a Sherlockian deduction. A brilliant way to showcase this new doctor, and if they wanted, if part of the point was to have a <laughs> what we used to call a pure historical, but a story without any aliens or mm. any science fiction in it, then it would have been great to remove the sonic screwdriver and the TARDIS and everything and have the doctor behaving. So you've stuck them in the 1920s and got them behaving mm. as if they are regular 1920s Earth people. Well, why not carry through on that promise for the whole thing and have mm. them anyway? It would have been fun. And to have the correct signal given for the four rather than... Absolutely. <laughs> That's the dog turd on the cake, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, ale- yes, allegedly, J- um, JNC himself was considering directing this. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. At one point. Which is intriguing. I doubt he'd have got the detail of it if, if what you're saying you about him, <laughs> about his befu- general befuddlement at cricket. Yeah. No, I don't think so, he was so interested, what do, no. What do we think about the direction? I mean, you know, Ron Jones isn't all that well thought of but I don't know quite why. I mean, we watched Frontios. I love Frontios. Giles and Paul, and we we mm. quite like that. Didn't what, didn't see anything to blame him for on that. I always, I love absolutely love Frontios. One of my favourites. 
Mm. Certainly one yeah. of my favourite Peter Davison. But he's uh, but the other ones he's done aren't that well received, are they? Well, mm. Vengeance on Varus was one of his, wasn't it? I'm not and a fan. Mind Warp looks great. He's certainly, uh, among all the bland-ish directors of that era, he's certainly able to pull out the visual goods when he mm, yeah. when he needs to. I don't know I don't know why he seems to be more inspired on some stories. Arc like Infinity was awful, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, was that just was that just the sets of Ark Infinity? But it, and the, uh, the sets and the costumes were pretty dreadful in, Ar- yeah. in Ark of Infinity. Oh, Ark of, oh, that's one of his. Yes, okay. I don't like Studio Bound stories, so I'm not a fan of Vengeance mm. and Viros. And Mind Warp is one of my least favourite stories ever. Just horrible brain transferences and just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> So I think perhaps the the issue with with Ron Jones is more that that the the actors working for him didn't get on with him all that well, but it, it appears that that in terms of getting the story made, he's done a pretty decent job with most of them. Yeah, they say that, don't they? But yeah, he got, he got the sort of production out on time, and that was the key thing for John Nathan Turner sometimes. Whereas he didn't realise quite how brilliant Graham Harper was, and because Caves of Androzani overran and. You know, it was only when the fans started raving about Capers of Androzani that he realised that there was something special, didn't he? He thought the Twin Dilemma was a classic production, John Nathan Turner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about the uh, guest actors? So, you know, it's quite, quite, quite a decent cast. Love Michael Cochran. He's good. Mm. And we've got yes. Ivor Salter. I know it's just not, <laughs> not, a, not, a, not a big part, but given, given the other podcasts you moonlight on, Paul. Well, I would never have made that connection if it wasn't no. for having recently done The Mythmakers and Toby Haydoke making a big point of it. He's, I mean, not, he's only got, got Odysseus got... written all over him, has he? <laughs> well, I was watching out for that. Mm. I mean, I'm only really familiar with, <laughs> I was going to say, from the, Ivor Salter from the telesnaps of The Mythmakers, but of course mm. they're not even telesnaps, are they? Their Photoshop jobbies of Ivor Saunter with a, I don't mm. know, with a beard plastered on him and some Trojan armour. But <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, oh, this is a bit of a come down, this tiny part of the policeman. And it turns from a tiny part into a slightly below medium sized part, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But he's doing his best. I could see what Toby meant. I was watching him and he's, <laughs> he's trying to steal the scene from the background. <laughs> so there's a funny story about Peter Davison as well. And. Um, Ian Botham, they they both had sponsored Saab motorcars. They're both clients of Saab. And Peter Davis was telling me that uh, they had a special day. I think it was at Snetterton or wherever they do these car things. And they were meant to go and test these Saab cars around the motor track. And Botham got in his and wrote his Saab off. And then Peter Davison didn't turn up, so Botham was allowed to use Peter Davison's Saab and wrote that off as well. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Typically in both them. Uh, but I remember Peter Davison telling me that anecdote, so it's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. That does sound very bad. Yeah. Mm. I've written quite a lot of Saabs off. Probably not in the same exciting way as Ian Botham. <laughs> <laughs> quite cool cars, aren't they, in their day? Uh, how about Sarah Sutton? I thought she was. I was quite pleased with the way she differentiated the two characters considering she's mm. quite an understated actress. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so Anne is a bit more kind of jolly hockey sticks, I suppose. Yeah, she's a bit, yeah, a bit simpering. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I like their confidence in the um, actress who's playing the doppelganger. They occasionally have her in a mid-shot. Yes. <laughs> with half her face yes. covered up, thinking, well, yeah. come on, come on. <laughs> can you tell the difference now? And you think, <laughs> what the hell's happened to Nissa's jaw? 
I've, I've, I've written that towards the end of the second episode. I said they just can't be bothered to hide and not Nissa now. Hey ho! Because it starts off being very subtle, and then then you can see her quite clearly in a couple of the scenes. Yeah. I think all the other mm. actors do the best with what they've got because the the dialogue isn't sparkling. It just has the occasional little fizz, like three day old champagne, but. You know, they they can see what the characters are supposed to be. I suppose the stuff the stuff to do with the Talbots. The Charkins mm. of Worcester. That was quite a good line, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they never really... And then that, that was it for cricket, really, wasn't it? During the rest of the Peter Davison era, until it was mentioned in Caves of Androzani when Shara's Jack had a tantrum. And Peter Davison said... Uh, or the Doctor said, uh, he's more a tennis player than a cricketer. And I think that was about... <laughs> oh, yes. uh, in reference to John McEnroe. And I think that was about the last time... The next time and the last time cricket was really mentioned. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's almost as if Doctor Who didn't care about cricket. <laughs> sadly, I was telling Richard, my, my um, prospective Big Finish production about cricket never got off the ground. It was Celestial Toymaker took on the Fifth Doctor in an in a ultimate game of cricket at Lords, using his lethal army of robots. And uh, the Doctor had something like a time scoop to, to go in time and collect his sort of all-time 11 which included the likes of Don Bradman <laughs> Alan Knott Dennis Lilly Matai Muralitharan but mm-hmm. um, I have it's, it's on my computer I, I was just telling Richard about it earlier but I got somebody a friend of mine who works in telly to read it and he said it was atrocious so <laughs> <laughs> the plot construction just friendly. wasn't there I'm afraid it's a bit harsh isn't well, it? yeah you don't need that <laughs> no the dialogue was okay and you know but it's just it's really hard isn't it to construct a sort of plot and everything I find I know Paul you've done various big finishes haven't you <laughs> yes it is. it is isn't it hard to construct a plot yeah it never gets any easier I can promise you that I did a football one as well but we'll I'll tell you about that when we come to the lodger I suppose <laughs> Uh, I suppose the problem with cricket is the plot goes on for five days. Yeah, this is a proper sort of test. Quite, and quite often doesn't resolve itself in the end after all. Uh, yeah. So. So what? Have we finished yet? Uh, more or less. I mean, there's there's a couple of things I was going to say very briefly. I mean, f- first off, it's another one of these classic stories set in Mummerset, you know, with with terrible sort of West Country accents. They, mm. they, they mention that, that Sir Robert is chief constable of the county without mentioning the county at least three times. It seems mm. a bit careless. We don't get to see um, the steam train that was annoying, do we? The train has, co- has left the platform when we yes. get there. Oh, yes. Yeah, the train, yeah, yeah. Is, the train is edited on stock. Surely they could have used yeah, the steam yeah. train. Conveniently gone. They didn't even waft any steam. No, couldn't they have gone to the Bluebell Railway or something? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, apparently the fifth doctor wanted to be a train driver when he was a boy, which is uh, enigmatic, isn't it? I did see a thing about this, which I can't claim credit for. Right. I think it's actually in the production notes. Someone points out the fact that um they do have train. You know, there's there's reasonable evidence they have trains on Gallifrey because of episode three of the Deadly Assassin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's not come from whoever subconscious that's come from. It's not <laughs> anybody from Earth. Is it? Just wow. the goth wanted to be wanted to run a miniature railway when he was yeah a, miniature railway specifically when he was a narrow gauge yeah, yes yeah. yeah yeah I wonder if they progress from narrow gauge straight to time travel <laughs> no, such is the trajectory of their scientific advancement the other thing I was going to point out was that in both stories we've got um, the doctor singing in the bath or the shower or whatever mm. uh, it's a reminiscent of Pertwee in the um, 
in Spearhead. In Spearhead, I, yes. I wonder, I wonder if uh, Peter Davison remembered that. Hmm. Oh, that's a bit past his era, isn't it? He's more of a trouser man. Hmm. But yes, in, in response to your earlier question, Paul, I think we're ready to move on to the other one. Would you <laughs> like me to provide you with another link between the two stories as a segue, even well, though you've not? already come up with one? Yeah, I mean, it's not a great pivot on which to hang it, but I, I might forget to mention it later on. Both stories feature the Doctor doing something which he very rarely does, I think, unless I'm willing to be corrected. He decides to get out of a tricky spot by explaining exactly who he is, that he's a Time Lord with a TARDIS, to yeah. one of the Earthmen yes. around him to get mm. him out of a tight corner. And um, mm. in Black Orchid, it's done very tediously and prosaically over <laughs> an <laughs> extended tiresome sequence yeah and here he <laughs> he headbutts james corden which i gather caused controversy in itself but um you can just imagine the script meetings that mm. led to it being boiled down to something really a sh really short sharp shock you know mm. none of that sort of once upon a time it might have been that whole contact time law beep 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 thing but um yeah well except they're not across hey, the void between time and space you can mm. also imagine it perhaps in an early draft it was something like a Vulcan mind meld that would have been a bit yeah. slower and, and mm. Stephen Moffat saying, no, it needs to be faster and madder and weirder. And Gareth mm -hmm. Roberts saying, oh, all right, then he headbutts him, Steve. Is that better? And Moffat going, <laughs> yes, that's exactly what we want. <laughs> so anyway, there we go. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, it's much more entertaining, but though it's still a bit, I don't know, I, th I still wonder, I thought it was slightly contrived in, in the lodger that he needed to explain to Craig who he was hmm. it sort of means it doesn't get the doctor out of a tight spot that he couldn't have talked himself out out of any other way all it does is give craig the knowledge to behave differently and to be backing hmm. the doctor up as we enter the final act hmm. so i was slightly torn on this watch as to how necessary it was but i suppose something like that needed to happen at some point and it gets it across very quickly and we get a nice little montage which Back in those days, we were always we were still very keen. Anytime, mm. very excited. Anytime we got a glimpse of old doctors, weren't we? So anyway, the lodger, Richard, and what's the sport that's in this one? <laughs> <laughs> it's association football, Paul. Oh, soccer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. It's the lodger, written by Gareth Roberts and directed by Catherine. I'm going to say Morsehead, but it could be Morshed or who knows. Moosehead. <laughs> Morsehead. Who's apparently, a, by this station, of, uh, of a veteran director. Uh, oh. Also record, also directed Amy's Choice in that season. Ah. Series. Ah, right. Oh, right. Well, you've answered a question for me then. Go on, then. I'm not such a terrible fan. I haven't rewatched these very much. And I was thinking, why is this an Amy Light? There wasn't a Doctor Light that series, was there? And... Is Amy's Choice essentially Dr. Light, as we call it? Is he in it less than average? Possibly. Possibly. Okay, well, that's, that's cleared that up. Um, you've got the Doctor and, the, uh, and Toby Watts-his-face, haven't you, quite a bit towards the end of it? But, but he's, he's absent for long stretches. I think... Yeah. I think they... Yes, it seems plausible, doesn't it? Try to fudge it a bit more than they had in previous series. Mm. It's slightly less noticeable than it was when they did the same trick with um, the Doctor and Donna in... Uh, Midnight and Turn Left, yes. Those two. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They got... they Yes, they gradually got better at it as they went along in terms of hiding where the 
where they have these double banks episodes. Yes. Yeah, because what this does as a, I think, again, <laughs> stand to be corrected, but more than any other episodes where the Doctor's companion is temporarily absent, he gets a brand new one-off companion, doesn't he? Craig is very explicitly set up to be a big guest character. Hmm. In a way that, as you in Midnight, the Doctor's got a whole cast of people around him. Hmm. Feels like it's been written, written as a star term, but maybe that's just with hindsight, because that's the way they went with it. Hmm. So it was was James Corden a, a star turn at this point, or is this just a bit before that? I think it was like Gavin and Stacey star. So he's at the same right. level as Catherine Tate was when she... Right. I don't, you know, hmm. she only had her own show on BBC Three, so I mean, it's, it just depends on your definition of, of a star term. Hmm. hmm. I think, and he'd been, was he in History Boys with, at the same time as Matt? Because he was another of the History Boys hmm. alumni, wasn't he? Good question. To, um, I think it's a sort of, sort of question we could have answered if we'd done any research. <laughs> <laughs> I still think we should make that the primary um, gimmick of this podcast, the, the no research <laughs> podcast. We should ask questions, and then we should cut the sound of keyboards tapping for the next two or three minutes, mm. followed by, oh, yeah. befuddled interjections, and then we reach a conclusion. We leave that as an exercise for the interested, for the interested listener. Yeah, we could put an unedited version on Patreon and make, make some money out yeah. of it. So in the same way that Black Orchid is a bit of a disappointing vehicle as far as Peter Davison is concerned, this one is an, uh, an absolute star turn as far as Matt Smith is concerned. It really gives him a chance to show off. Oh, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. Yes. I mean, we've either been very lucky in the 11th Doctor episodes we've covered on here, or they're all, or he's fantastic in all of them. I'm starting to think it might be the latter. But as you say, the script certainly gives him lots of business. I remember thinking at the time that he was even more eccentric and gauche here than he had been up to now. I mean, not not in a way that bothered me, but um, because it was all very funny and charming. But his particular uncertainty of how people behave on 20th century Earth seemed to strike me as quite quite surprising. 11th Doctor turned up to 11, as it were. Mm. But if you're going to do all that sort of thing, you have to do it well. It has to be written with flair and imagination and acted with a touch of genius. Yes. And of course, this is um, this is lifted from uh, Gareth Roberts' comic strip story for the Tenth Doctor, isn't it? It's, um, it originates as the Doctor having to the Tenth Doctor having to hide out with Mickey on Earth in well, I, th- I believe it was even called the Lodger. It was a, an early early Who, uh, two thousand and six or so. Taking Leaf out of Moffat's book with his Sally Sparrow ripoffs, and in fact, quite a lot. Hmm. But I think um, I think Moffat deliberately went. They had something else that they were going after, where there was the usual problem of it being too similar to something else. And then Moffat had liked the story and remembered it, and said, "Well, why don't you do an adaptation of that?" So mm. obviously it would have been. I know I can't. I can't recall. I'm sure the tenth. I'm sure the tenth Doctor version passed my eyes at some point, but I can't remember. And it obviously wouldn't have had quite the same level of all the fish out of water comedy. And stuff that is what makes this this one sing. Mm. So look, there's another there's another link between the two stories. They both stick the Doctor in in a very low key, earthbound setting, don't they? Mm. Yeah. 
it's not contemporary in Black Orchid, but that doesn't really matter to the Doctor. Being at a cricket match and a cocktail party is mm. different is different enough from his everyday life. And here we have the Doctor in Colchester. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> is it the first time there's a story in Colchester? Probably. Ooh, since the Roman invasion. Yeah. One of them's high society. The other one's mundane suburban life but you know for the doctor they're both it's a busman's holiday either way hmm. so it reminds me of um it reminded me of an ever decreasing circles episode where martin played by richard Bryars, was meant to be it was his cricket team back to cricket it was his cricket yeah. team yes and he was the captain and the secretary and the fixture manager and the made the and nam made the tees and he was just the whole it was the whole cricket club and then Paul, played by Peter Egan, came along and turned out to be a superstar <laughs> oh, <yes>. and <laughs> annoyed the hell out of him. And yeah. Yeah. so it really reminds me of that, that um, the Corden character, James Corden character, his kind of team and his baby, and then this interloper turns up and turns out to be a superstar. So, But <laughs> the difference being Peter Egan can't play cricket. Watching that over Decreasing Circles episode, Peter Egan can't play cricket, but obviously Matt Smith was a very good footballer. And I, Have you mm-hmm. interviewed Peter Egan? No, I did watch him. <laughs> oh. I did watch him in Look Back in Anger too at Leatherhead Theatre during my degree. And he's a very good actor, and I very much like him. He's in um, Perfect Spy, isn't he? So he's a fabulous mm. actor, but I, he's no cricketer. <laughs> I'm judging by the decreasing circles. But Matt Smith, of course, was a good footballer. I think he was a centre back. He grew up in Northampton and played for Northampton Town, mm-hmm. and had to give up because of a back injury. Apparently he is a Blackburn Rovers fan. Now, that doesn't sound logical, okay. considering Northampton is nowhere near Blackburn Rovers, but if you think that Matt Smith was born in 1982, then he would have been 12 when Blackburn won the league. And oh. me being from Suffolk and being a Liverpool fan, it's kind of the same thing, that uh, in your formative <laughs> years you get into the team who are the best. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that was the year Blackburn when Dal Gleish was the manager and Alan Shearer was the star striker, so... Yeah, that explains his love for that. It's interesting. Apparently, I assumed that I, I thought oh, they must have written this in the same way as in the same way as like oh Davison, he's like yeah, yeah. I, and but apparently the um, the football sequence is in the original comic strip with the Tenth Doctor. Good lord! Mm. Oh yeah. yeah. So apparently, apparently the. He rocks up to play for Mickey's little punch team point. or whatever. Mm. So we, we were spared the sight of... Well, not, I mean, we weren't literally spared the sight of David Tennant having to pretend to be good at football. <laughs> but, well, that's a bit of luck, isn't well, it? Yes, I mean, yeah. He's yeah. Scottish, I suppose he can probably play. He's never mentioned sport, has he? No. There's a love of sport. True, true. Come on, there must be some other Doctor Who fans who don't like... I'm <laughs> 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 feel very isolated so, here. So, so they're rather... Rather strange little goals, aren't they? In, in this? Yeah, so there's no net. They seem like proper proper goals. There's a couple of things that annoys me, okay? So, I mean, I used to do cover football for the Telegraph. So, a couple of things annoy me. One, there's no nets in the goals. Two, King's arms on the shirts is missing an apostrophe. <laughs> three, three, the goalkeeper that he that Matt Smith scores all the goals against is wearing the same colour jersey as his teammates. So, they, they, play, they play in green and the goalie's in green as well in exactly the same shirt. Would that be allowed? I don't know. <laughs> um, apart from that, it's fine. Well, the thing is, they're, they're clearly 
professional enough to have a, have a goalie there, aren't they? I know. It's not. A, it's not really a complete knockabout. It's, but, I suppose it's conceivable sorry, that he would win. Sorry, I'm getting my terminology wrong. Sorry, a, a referee. They have they have someone who's. So they have a referee. I doubt that Gareth Roberts knows any more about football than. He hasn't struck me as a big <laughs> football fan. Who, who should I include here? Me or me or Paul? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe that's why it's a very brief sequence. It would have just been the doctor does some great football stuff. Yeah, he pinches a free kick from <laughs> under Gordon's yeah. nose. I'm reminded of Mitchell and Webb's Lazy Writers. <laughs> yes. Doing the footballing thing. Oh, that's he brilliant. footballs the ball. That's he footballs sketch. the ball over there. That's a brilliant sketch, not, that yes. one way. Football, we've got the football. Stoke oh, City yes, versus Hugh, you pointed out earlier that nobody involved in Black Orchid, the director, the, the film editor, who I would mm. want to throw under the bus, because when you said that there was the wrong signal given, that would have been the decision made in the editing room. Yeah. Maybe you just thought it looked more pleasing with a particular... <laughs> but anyway, mm. do you think here the same problems happen with the director and the editor? No, I don't think, I don't think it's as bad. I presume Matt Smith would have been pointed out really bad errors. Um, I really, you know, I was I was clutching looking for stuff, but you know the goalie wearing the same colour jersey as his teammates. I mean, you think he put on a bib or another jumper or something? I just I suppose it's plausible that the Nets wouldn't have goals, being a sort of park game. I did wonder if that was just to make it. I oh, know. I mean, is it less clear visually if there's a net? Be, do they want us to be able to see the goal, the ball going through, or is that? Well, it would have been look good. So they always say that it looks good the ball bulging the net, doesn't it? So um, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think they probably would have preferred nets. Um, how many how many players are there? Is it five aside, or are they or seven aside, or what? Do we see? I guess it was eleven. I don't, I don't know. Is it full? It's it's not really clear. Is Whole it? kit and caboodle. No. There seems to be a lot of people on the pitch. They think it's all over. <laughs> The doctor says he doesn't oh, know yes. what football is. Is it the one with the sticks, he says? But sh- that's surely <laughs> inconceivable that the, the doctor in all his incarnations wouldn't have known what football was. I mean, that seems a bit weird. Yeah, but don't. Mm. we've already established that he knows nothing <laughs> in, the, in this story. Mm. He doesn't know how people greet each other or how they pay yeah, for things. So What's the explanation for that, then? Pertwee's doctor must have seen some football in all of that time he's in the Yeah, I mean, 70s. weren't there, weren't the brigadier and Yates and that lot and Benton watching a football match one night or something? Mm. That's, that on the, that's, the, yeah. that's the rugby. Oh, was it the rugby? Or was pretty, it right? Pretty sure that's the rugby they're watching. I can't believe there hasn't been any football. It's weird, isn't it? I mean, yes. Have you got a top ten football references? No, I, I couldn't find any. I mean, um, the great, <laughs> the great unmade Doctor Who story was my. Um, Perspective, big finish production called Football Alien. About um, it was an alien on the run, a, a criminal. I'm not sure. I didn't really establish what crime he'd committed, but he loved football, and he was masquerading as a Cardiff City striker in 1959, <laughs> and scored loads of goals in freak fashion. And mm. the doctor, it sort of it brought the attention of the authorities that he'd scored sort of 69 goals in 42 games or something, and. And he was his disguise was sort of slipping, and the alien bounty hunters were closing in on him, and 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 yeah, that was another one of my Doctor Who stories that never got off the ground really. But um, did you show that to your friend who works in television? No, I didn't show him that one. No, I'm no. working on a one. I'm hoping he had another adjective for it. <laughs> or something. I'm working on another one during lockdown, which I have hopes for. I genuinely have hopes for, but uh, that hasn't got any sporting references particularly in it. But uh, yeah. It, it sounds a little bit like um, you, you might be t- going with the same fibre as um, Delta and the Bannerman there, the sort of Wales in the 1950s. 
Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, you know, I, I chose Wales, obviously, because Doctor Who was being filmed down there. Because I, I, I remember writing this at the time when Matt Smith was cast as the Doctor and finding out that he liked football. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll write a football story and send that off to Stephen Moffat in the days when, naively, we did things like that, not knowing that they weren't even going to read your scripts and they'd send them back in envelopes saying, sorry, Stephen Moffat isn't able to read this for copyright reasons or whatever. But, um, yeah, so I did, I did write quite a lot of this one. And, yeah, so I chose Cardiff because it was filmed in Cardiff. I chose 1959 because obviously now nowadays if a footballer was doing really well it would be all over the internet and and you know you, right. you could sort of disguise yourself a bit more presumably in those days yeah and i chose football because yeah matt smith loved football so mm. this is vaguely reminding me of a spy caper thing that a, a mate of mine and i wrote many years ago just a spec screenplay thing which involves a suave american spy but the thing was we we alighted on the name archie gemmel as being his co- as being his cover name, and then it uh, became apparent to both of us, you know, after after the fact, after we got quite attached to this name Archie Gemmel, uh, who did you know we thought this it sounds too familiar and mm. and googled it and we thought oh okay <laughs> that's Archie Gemmel and it actually kind of worked works better because he was this legendary Nottingham Forest and Scotland undercover, undercover spy being undercover in London and being completely unaware and having chosen the cover name Archie Gemmel without <laughs> and not realising why people why people were looking at him funny. <laughs> there are loads of stories and audios of football and Doctor Who because if you go to tardis.fandom.com there's stacks of stuff because I was looking at it before um, loads of comics and audios reference. I mean, mm. the, the, you know, the, the, the football match in World War One in No Man's Land in fact, did, oh, they, yes. did they do that in the in the Christmas special recently, or did they, were they playing football or when um, they brought the first Doctor back? Can't remember. No, let's, I don't. let's pause and go off and research it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's our new thing. I don't think no, they did yeah. actually. No, the one with Mark Gatiss in it. I don't. Yeah, I don't recall. No, football. I don't think they had football no, there, did they? There was there was it was more kind of Silent Night, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, the other perennial thing with that is some. Yes, well, I haven't seen it since since it was broadcast and. Uh, that one yeah. always te- that one always tends to blur together with goodbye, the Blackadder episode, obviously. Yeah, yeah. The Doctor takes Perry to fo- fo- the FA Cup final in 1936 in a story called The Church of Football. Mm-hmm. M- Mickey Smith references football, saying he wants to go and watch the match in rows. Yes, well that figures, whatever the match is. Just going to say another thing that's um, occurred to me with regard to the influences on this thing. And so, and I was thinking of spaced, perhaps. Ah. Really, um, yeah, just thinking about the the, the setup of um, Tim and Daisy in spaced hmm. versus Craig and Sophie here. It's quite. Yeah, I think there's a certain similarity there. Hmm. Yes, I can see that. Hmm. Both actors in Doctor Who, of course. Yes. Does that make the elements? Does that make the Doctor tires? Mrs. Who. She married hmm. Doctor Who, didn't she? Well, she married the Doctor, sort of. In human nature. Oh, of course, yes. Well, in his yeah. dreams, I suppose, wasn't it? Good point, yeah. Nurse Redfern. Mm-hmm. So what yes. do you think? Why is this better than Black Orchid? It's full of similarly inconsequential stuff. I, I'll, I'll kick off. Mm. I, oh, cause these metaphors just keep tumbling out, don't they? <laughs> they um, it threads the science fiction in with the, the whimsy of the Doctor living an everyday life much better. Mm. There's mm. mystery and thrills from the start 
and um, it comes up almost at two regular intervals with these regular cutaways to Amy. I think we could have, I would have been perfectly happy to, yeah. uh, to forget about Amy for a bit longer, but um, yeah. Yeah. I guess they were worried about that. That was her episode I think it's off, just isn't it? <laughs> really well paced. And um, mm. the pacing of these 50-minute episodes is something that's bothered me ever since the new series started. They're, I go on about it quite a lot, don't I? But um, I don't really like the ones that take a long time to get going and a long time to resolve and only have about half mm. an hour of plot in the middle. That winds me up. But this one is one of the ones that does it perfectly. Mm. So it's not surprising yeah. they've got the hang of it by now when they're all that length. Whereas Black Orchid being the first half-length story since uh, whenever it was. Suntown Experiment. So. Oh, yes. Mm. Yeah, I was forgetting about that one. God, they're so irregular, aren't they? But not as bad yeah. as the pacing of like, Attack of the Sidemen. The first episode of 45 minutes was essentially a 25-minute episode stretched out, wasn't it? So, Oh, absolutely. Um, mm. the whole, that whole series essentially could be 50-minute episodes, divide, you know, but actually mm. made in two 50-minute episodes. Well, we've not covered any of them yet, have we? So I'm sure we'll get on to that. I, I, in our post-show discussions about what to do next, I somehow keep... Yeah, I re I rewatched season. I'm consciously doing it. Yeah, wouldn't mind if you, want to, if you need something to waffle on about that. I'm happy. Yeah, I watched the whole series, and I just there's about fifteen twenty bits that you could take out of that series and actually make it half decent. I would say it's much better than I remembered it. But anyway, we go off on one. Mm. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Apparently, also this episode, the lodger was being shown at the same time as the 2010 World Cup. All right. On the oh. night, on the night that I think that England played America. Good lord. Is that the year that they beat us, or was that the next one after that? I think we won that one, didn't we? I'm just trying to say some, any tiny little thing that shows I've ever watched football. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the irony is I, that I've watched quite a lot of football, and, but I must say though, these more recent World Cups just blur one after another. It's just, it's just a long mm. litany of poor performances. Yeah, they do, but, didn't they? The one we, we lost to Iceland, that, that sort of rings a bell. Yeah. It was canny. This, this was about the, the tail end of when they seemed to... Because this was the last series that was produced on anything like a managed <laughs> schedule. Um, yeah. <laughs> because up until this point, they were very good at getting episodes in that had topical topical tie-ins. So I know I remember the 2006 World Cup, the um, Radio Times did the Daleks vs. Cybermen. Oh, yes. We had Doomsday going on at the same time, and they did a Daleks vs. Cybermen Football World Cup tie-in dual colours, didn't they? I'd wipe that from my memory. And we had the Daleks, the vote, vote Dalek one, when they had the 2005 election. And uh, <laughs> they were very good at getting getting things that were just on, just in the zeitgeist at, at the right moment, right up until the point where the yeah production fell apart, really. <laughs> and then we were suddenly grateful for it whenever we got it. Apparently Matt Smith's grandfather also played for Notts County. And oh, Matt, right. Matt Smith okay. also, as well as Northampton, played for the youth teams of... Nottingham Forest and Leicester City. Okay. Yeah. Oh, right. heritage. So it's up, all up and down the east side of the country. Mm. Mm. Do you know Matt Smith also auditioned for the role of Will McKenzie in the comedy series The Between? How times have changed. Mm. <laughs> Has anyone seen The Lodger, the Alfred Hitchcock silent film? Oh, Lord. Because no. this could be a really fruitful mm. discussion if anybody has. <laughs> oh. Oh, Lord. Um, it's, yes, Ivan Novello, isn't it? A Story of the London Fog, 1927. Mm. It, it is Ivan Novello, plays, plays the lodger, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. I have, I've seen it many, many years ago, and I really don't remember all that many details. Jack the Ripper-style um, serial killer. Yes, yeah. Paul, are you able to... 
<laughs> so anyway, you want to go with that, or were you just tra- no, tra- I, tra- training it across a bit like as anyone read Highwise? It's, it's <laughs> a genuine point of reference. No, I mm. think there are no links whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose that, I suppose it's a classic horror horror movie trope. The whole what's the what's the strange thing going on upstairs or downstairs? Yeah, or, and it's usually the lodger, the... him or herself, that's yes trouble, which it isn't here. Yes. No, true. Pacific Heights. Should, we, that's should the... we talk about Gareth Roberts's original idea for what was going to be upstairs? Which is oh, yes. yes. Anyone remember? Megloss. I can tell Giles does. Mm. Yeah. Was it Mrs. Megloss? <laughs> <laughs> Megloss's wife, who's, got a, who's pissed off and has a vendetta against the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> is this your favourite Gareth Roberts? Ooh, um, I think it's probably mine. Look. I think I'd quite like the Shakespeare Code. I know lots of people don't. Like. I like most of them. I wouldn't know how they're. They're so warm-hearted. Mm. There's something mm. about them that I find very appealing. Do. Yeah. I mean, it's a shame he doesn't write anymore for the series. It's it's an it's an honest opinion uh, given freely. So yeah. I, don't why uh, I don't want to get into all the politics of what he said or not said. I but yeah, he's he was good for an episode of series, wasn't he? Yeah, and I think he, I don't, I have no idea what went wrong, but I think he had trouble writing for the Twelfth Doctor. He said something, didn't he? He got, himself, he, got in, he got in trouble for saying something about something. Well, there's that, yes, <laughs> in general. Mm. I think that was a bit later on. I'm just, I, I, th- I think his once, uh, you know, his annual contributions are disappeared. He has been a bit critical of the Twelfth Doctor. The, um, characterization. Is his last it? one the the caretaker? Yeah, it is. Yeah, named yeah. in the same format. As I think this. he said a few things about the characterization of the Twelfth Doctor, hadn't he? That it was a bit sort of aggressive and obnoxious. Yeah. That, in that first series. Mm. Did he wait till after it, um, his association with the program? Yeah, perhaps. Before he started saying that. There was quite. I mean, I I, thought, I found it quite refreshing actually. I watched. The, um, the first story the other, a bit the other day because it was the sixth anniversary or something wasn't it or, yeah I, I quite enjoyed I like this quite like the spikiness of Capaldi yeah. yeah I mean they they had to tap into that because they had Malcolm Tucker didn't they and that was the obvious way to go with him wasn't it and then they toned it down didn't they and he became some people say he was a bit like sort of an older Matt Smith with the electric guitar sitting on top of the tank and all that kind of stuff but he was really spiky in that first series where it went wrong I think was um about his anti-army stuff, I think that really grated on me. That, yeah, that was really I weird, was, wasn't it? One of his best friends was the brigadier, that. and yeah, he was. He kept calling Danny Pink Army, didn't he, and things like that. PE mm. as well. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit odd. Though, that was there was, a, there was a lot of that. I think there was a lot of that in the caretaker. And um, yeah. although Gareth Roberts probably wouldn't thank me for categorising his scripts as warm-hearted, mm. I think that the caretaker, which is came came to the screen, co-written by Stephen Moffat. Yeah, I do wonder if a lot of the um, some of his contributions were harshing up the doctor's yeah. dialogue, in which case I don't think he did it, did it any favours. No. Well, it's funny, we were, um, we were reviewing Deep Breath a, um, a few episodes ago and saying how, how much of the, the harshness and so on comes in, with the, comes in from Into the Dalek onwards rather than actually being there all that much in the first, in the, de- in the debut story. Yeah. It's quite, um, a lot of that's, that sort of stuff really isn't there quite so much. And there's a gag, gag about attack eyebrows and, and things, but you don't really get into that whole angsty "am I a good man" kind of thing, mm. and the idea that he's a borderline sociopath. I remember th- spotting this time watching the lodger that the the resolution is very similar to closing time, 
which is, is the, yeah. the sequel. Mm. They're both it's, in both cases the power of love. Yeah, yeah saves the day, all, yeah. which is not uh, not some the sort of thing that I would normally go for. But he manages to keep it from being too treacly and actually make it yeah, yeah. quite <laughs> quite powerful. Does that come into any of his other stories? That's probably um, just the, the, the most beast? throwaway Cyberman story ever, isn't it? That story. I mean, previously in Doctor Who, the return of the Cybermen is an event in itself, isn't it? But in that story, yeah, yeah. The, it's not really a Cyberman story as such. Mm. I think no. it's fair after 50 years that you can start throwing them in as a bit of spice rather than mm. oh, it always having to be about them. Well, they do that all through, all through Series 6, don't they, really? They turn up in... It's the return of Craig, that story, rather than the return yeah. of the Cybermen, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I had to say I wasn't I wasn't keen on the sequel. I'm not sure. I just no. I I think despite what I just said, I actually think they did push that a bit too far. Mm. The, um, it was a bit emotionally manipulative. The ending of closing time. Mm. But I, I I think this one is very very light. It's it, it it's it just seems to work really well on its you know it's on its own terms. Mm. Um, yes. I, you know I, I found the time pass very quickly while I was watching it. Mm. And you know, I, uh, I laughed in most of the right places. So yeah, I, and and yeah, the the ending's a bit weak, but actually, it's all right. You know, it, mm. it kind of makes it makes sense within the context of the story. So I was okay with that. I didn't realize that a lot of people. I'm just looking at Wikipedia. Wikipedia tells me, and so it must be true that people generally think the ending is weak. And I didn't have a problem. The resolutions are no. a big problem for me. They're all often where a story will fall down. Because you'll be mm. waiting, if there's a mystery, you'll be waiting to find out how it's resolved, why the, why these things are happening. And far mm. too often it turns out there is no good reason why these things are happening. Mm. It's because the writer had three really good ideas and, and wanted to put them all in the same story. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> and only at the last hurdle did he realise there was no way of connecting them. But here it makes sense and it doesn't feel like a cop-out. No. I mean, it's paced so nicely that we want Craig and, what's her name? Sophie, Craig and Sophie to get. To, we want Craig and Sophie to get together because the story has mostly been about. We're most we're more invested in the human side of it. Mm. So when that turns out to be the way that the day is saved, and quite cleverly, because he's also used. I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here. I was going to say that it seems to me as a layman that Gareth Roberts is quite good at mimicking the style of the showrunner of his day. His stories mm. fit perfectly into their era. His earlier ones feel a bit Russell T. Davis-y. Late, and this feels Moffaty. The, the kind of disassociated spooky catchphrase that rings out of the front door as people are passing yes. feels very Moffaty mm. to me. The character mm. in the shadows, help, oh, it's help me catchphrase. Mm, very yes. Moffaty. Yes, I think the tightness of the resolution where the character interactions fit. Oh, yes, and the um, the explanation for what is going on upstairs, that it's just malfunctioning mm. tech is also very Moffat-y. Very Moffat, We've probably yes. seen yeah. it slightly too often by this point, but it's as it's mm. not the main thrust of the story, it's not a problem. I think that's that's the thing, that I don't mind as much as I came to roll my eyes at Love Conquers All resolutions to plots, especially through the Moffat era. But in this case, it is organic to it because the entire the entire thing is set up as a, you know, there is a will-they-won't-they they rom-com thing going through it, you know, spaced, etc., etc. You know, it's referencing all those kind of Notting Hill and things like that. And and I think the fact that that then becomes the resolution to the to the science fiction plot yeah. 
yeah, that is that's that's earned. Then that that is a. It's set up quite cleanly, clever. and it isn't too contrived. It's set mm. up that the the spaceship requires somebody who wants to leave. Mm. It's yeah. searching through the minds of these people. Indeed. And it's yes. people want to leave, and the whole story has been about the fact <laughs> that Craig and Sophia are, are in denial about mm. what's keeping them there. So really, it is entirely organic the way mm. these two a, a and B plots in, uh, come together. So very impressive. Mm. And I've no idea what anybody else would have want, thought was a better ending. If they wanted a big gun battle in the spaceship with la- laser beams flying everywhere, well, we get that next year, don't we? Mm. When they yes. reuse the set <laughs> with a bit of retconning. Mm. When it turns uh, out the... it wasn't Miss, it wasn't Mrs. Meglos, it was the silence. Mm. Yes. And the sublime. The sublime. <laughs> I'm never sure why that's what the connection is at all. No. I don't think well, it's, it's no less tight than every every other way in which they try to thread the silence into the ongoing eleventh Doctor mm. narrative. But maybe we'll come back to that. <laughs> yes, yeah. The other thing that occurred to me on watching it, and I'm not quite sure how strong the um, resolution was, but oh, the the, um, the connection really is. But um, obviously Moffat's liberally reused certain elements of the plot for the pilot. Go on. When it came round to it. Hmm? That's true. I well, the pilot, is all, the pilot is also about an alien spaceship looking for a pilot. Okay, yes, yes, yes. And, kidnap- and kidnapping, I believe, various people, as I, as I recall. Or kidnapping and yes. killing, killing various people while looking for the right, for the right, for the right kind of host. They're completely shameless. Hmm. Mm. But it works both times, so it's obviously a good idea. Yes, yeah, and I haven't seen... Yeah, there I go, there I go, there I go again. I haven't seen the pilot probably since, <laughs> since 2015. So, 2015, was it? 2016. Hmm. One of them. When, one of them. One of those years there. Yeah. Anything to say about the cast? I, I just want to say I'm very fond of... I like James Corden as a performer. And uh, I'm very keen on Daisy Haggard. So, yes, you know, she's lovely. I'm, very I'm all over this. It's mm. a shame she wasn't in uh, Closing Time as much. That's possibly... That's another big mm. flaw of it from my point yeah. of view. Yeah. I don't understand quite why... I've never really got why people are so down on James Corden. And whether it's just, <laughs> yeah, because there are obviously people are. And... Well, I don't know him, mm. but so maybe I should retract that. <laughs> but yeah, you know, whether it's just a, whether it's just an MV thing or yeah, you know, I'm talking about people who don't know him. Being it is for me. I mean, I always always want to have my own chat show on late night American television. So for me, mm. it's, it's pure envy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll say some other nice things about him if you thought that was too... I thought. He, did you ever see One Man, Two Governors in the theatre? No, I never did, the physical performance. Mm-hmm. Top class. Mm. Yeah, I, I think, I think the, the cast is what really makes it. I think Matt Smith and the, and the, and the two of them together, it just seems to work really well. In, and as you say, Amy's just irritating in this one because she's taking <laughs> you away from what's going on mm. in, 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 in the, the main part of the story. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I did quite like that little communicate the gag about the communications being scrambled and mm. and them hearing the doctor talking up absolute gibberish. Mm. From the, um, I do. I do like the um, the sort of gubbins that he makes in the bedroom. It, it, it sort of strikes me as being pure sort of trout and or pertwee, you know, sort of yeah. um, ludicrous machine. So, so I quite like that. Mm. I like. I can't. I didn't write down any jokes, but I particularly like it when Sophie is told what the doctor's calling himself and assumes he must be a drug dealer. 
That's, that's <laughs> I don't know why that. <laughs> not that they say that, mm. but um, I think that's one of the things that made me think about spaced. That, that sort of a gag. Mm. Yeah, that sort of thing being stuck in there. Going up on on, on what um, Hugh said about the, the football side of things, of course, the doctor then goes and bosses the office as well as the football. I mean, he he really is the most infuriating mm. flatmate as far as um, as far as Craig's concerned. This sort of business is perfect for a fifty-minute episode because it's yeah. it is over the top. It's too if you lingered on it, it will be too absurd to mm. be believable. And once it stopped being funny, you might start to think about it a bit more and think, well, this is pushing it too far. I've got a sense of I've got as good a sense of humour as the next man, but I I like my Doctor Who to be grounded in reality. You would say, but because these things are moving on such a clip in the new series, mm. you get away with it. And, well, I mean, more than get away with it, it becomes part of the fun. Mm. So oh uh, yeah, the Doctor is a bit madder this week than normal, but that's fine. It, Doctor Who is supposed to be slightly different every week. Mm-hmm. That was always the point of, of it. It's not supposed to be homogenous. Mm. So do your comedy Doctor Who stories and make them supremely funny, like this one. Well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, it, 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 it's a easy for you Doctor to say. Who story, <laughs> a, a comedy Doctor Who story is, is worth doing if it's funny, mm. and, you know, and, it, and it isn't worth doing if it's not very funny. And you can't say further than that. No. Any parting thoughts that could summarise these two disparate forays into the world of the sport ball? Or have we said everything that could possibly be... Can we tease any more links out of them? There's there's something hidden upstairs. Have we mentioned that yet? Oh, oh. there is. Oh, well, very good. Blimey. Oh, yes, good point. <laughs> I'm starting to think this is actually a complete rip-off of Black Orbit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's only a rip-off if it's a worse version of, than the original, isn't it? Hmm. I mean, it, 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 since, since we, we seem to be merging on the idea that this is a, a rather superior story to Black Orchid then I don't think I've got anything more more for you than there's, there's something <laughs> so, in that says but, but it's brilliant. an idea. Okay, well we'll say it again and <laughs> sell it a bit harder if this is what you're going to end it, on it was, it was the Followed by t- a musical sting <laughs> <laughs> It was a working title at one point, wasn't it? Something at the top of the stairs Right. It was actually the working title for this one so. hmm. Would that even, hmm. Could that even have been a play on something at the end of the lane or is that not the sort of Ooh. Oh, was that nothing at the end of the lane? Nothing oh, at the remember. end of the lane, but... It no, could so still... it probably wasn't then. Oh, it could still work. Well, you never know with these fan writers, do you? And, yes, exactly. And Richard had started doing his... I'm I sure think said... A couple of issues of the um, of Nothing at the End of the Lane, the superlative magazine. Hmm. Has anyone Doctor said anything research? remotely negative about uh, the logic yet? Because I've got one thing. Go on, then. A business about the fact that the house was originally only a one-storey house and there was nothing on the second floor mm. is absolute nonsense because yes. <laughs> there was no such thing as a one-storey house. Uh, especially yeah. not one that looks like a two-storey house with the top floor removed. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it would have been... If you wanted to be completely plausible, it would have made sense if it was in the third, in the attic or on the, you know, on the third floor. But mm. there's yeah. no third floor. But I know that doesn't sound as good. Mm. And it would have meant rearranging the geography and it would all have been a bit more cumbersome. But if we didn't have the visual to go with it, they might get away with it. You might think, wow, Mm. there was no, the floor, the top floor of the house didn't exist. It was actually a spaceship. If you can just say that, then you don't worry about it. But as soon as you see, you think, hang on a minute. (laughs) I've never seen, I've been up and down this land of ours, and I've never seen a terrace house like that. Mm. What happened? 
There's a whole story behind that, why they had to build it. Maybe there was a window in the side of the one next door, and um, when they came to put a build a, a nut, one for, mm. further house on the end, it happened. Happened yes. in Dover, in the Market Square. You, do you know the um, the haberdashers in the Market Square in Dover? That's one story for the same reason. Actually, I'll Ooh. take it back. It can happen. Okay. <laughs> okay. So basically, your entire point is invalid. Yeah, but it filled <laughs> five minutes, didn't it? Yeah. We've, we've certainly never had quite as much cricket and football on the podcast before and probably never will again. <laughs> no, but, but, but we've also I mean, but seldom had that much research coming out of a single mouth. We've that's true. <laughs> that's, yeah. You've set an impossible standard for us to live up to now. <laughs> Hugh, thanks very much for coming on. It, it's been great to talk to you and look at these two sporting Doctor Who stories. I hope, I've hugely enjoyed it and I hope that um, it's not been too boring for some of your listeners who not into their sport and um sort of open their eyes to the, the magic world of cricket yeah yeah well there'll be another one along next next time if if, if it has but uh no it's been fantastic we've uh, i've enjoyed uh, two passions coming together so it's mm. great thank you for having me yeah. it's been fun thank you thank oh, oh. Look, I wouldn't oh, have done any of those gags if rich hadn't <laughs> set the whole thing off yeah he put us up he put us up to it yes <laughs> yeah Cheers. Okay. Speak again soon. It is fascinating how how much you just find yourself falling over sporting metaphors, no matter how how much you profess to be. I complete, that. have completely no no interest in sport or you know or no particular knowledge, and yet it's just wormed its way into the um General into the language and yeah vocabulary of our society. Do you think it's like that in all societies, or just us? You find also in in uh, in business, people are desperate to use sporting metaphors because it's just it's a simple thing that's easy to analyze and so it's very good for your analogies unfortunately it doesn't really translate very well into very much yeah. to do in business because it's it is too simplistic and it doesn't it doesn't really reflect what goes on but what annoyed me back when i had an office job was that a lot of these expressions were coming over from america relating to sports that i know even less about so they're constantly <laughs> going like things being in the same ballpark which i had yeah, i still yeah. don't know quite what that means why would something be in a different ballpark i don't i don't get it any Americans out there listening? Uh, you, you, you can email us and, and we'll, uh, we'll yep. read out your erudition some other time. I, put, I make an offer to our, le- our listenership every week if yes. it, for them to contact us and help out. They never do. <laughs> they must just enjoy, they must enjoy listening to our struggle. <laughs> Colin Baker used to play in his garden and pretend to be Colin Cowdery. And he did wear Pete Sedgwick's costume briefly, didn't he, in uh, Twin Dilemma? Yeah. And yeah. Andrew's Arnie, yeah, until he, he uh, had to give it up for that monstrosity. It's interesting that Colin Baker would have been a Cowdery fan because he's uh, famous for being brought up in Lancashire, isn't he? Oh. Uh, Rochdale, somewhere like that. In fact, Peter Davison, I'm just reading it now, Peter Davison mentioned Colin Cowdery in his um, interview. He said that. He, he liked the fact that, that you had these big sort of rotund figures like Colin Cowdery in cricket. It's, it is almost a shame, really, that um, that, that it's been spoiled now. That you have these svelte super athletes playing cricket, mm. whereas um, he almost got he, what he liked about it, the, cricket mm. in the old days, was um, that you had these sort of big figures and everything. So, mm. 
It's a bit harsh on Cowdery, isn't it? I mean, I think I mean he was certainly chunkier in his later days. I'm not sure that he necessarily always was. Hilariously, when he was called up to play Australia in 1974-5, and he was 42 years old, public school boy, typical English yeah. gen, 42 years old, called up to play Australia. Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson, these fast bowlers who were literally trying to take England's heads off, and Kipper Cowdery, Colin Cowdery, went out and said screaming Aussie crowd, everybody shouting about the ponds and everything. And he said, how do you do? I am, my name's Colin Cowdery. And Jeff Thompson said, that's not going to save you, fat. So, and <laughs> yeah. 